Welcome to Iconoclast, a podcast series dedicated to exploring the mindset of innovators and those who question the operative assumptions of their industries. Today, I'm speaking with serial tech entrepreneur Debarshi Chaudhary, who is the CEO and founder of Quantalus Innovations and the co-founder of Showmetry, a virtual and hybrid trade show platform. Welcome, Debarshi. Thanks, Lisa. Pleasure to be here. So you're a lifelong entrepreneur. What led up to your first entrepreneurial endeavor? And when was that? The first one was just because I didn't want to work for anyone. <laughs> so that's what led me to start up Quantilus. And that was almost 15 years ago now. And the moment I got my first job, I knew I didn't want that first job. So I was always looking for opportunities to spin off on my own. And first chance I got with some like-minded partners, I started off a new company that then evolved into a software development company. And we started doing both custom projects for clients and also building software products. And all of those innovations, product level innovations really came up through necessity more than anything else. Some of the products that we've built, for instance, AppleGrint is our automated interview app which takes video interviews of job candidates that came about because we were suddenly thrown into this mode where we needed to hire a lot of people and we didn't have the resources to do it. So we built a tool to help us take interviews and that that became a product. The other product that we were talking about, Showmetry, that actually came up purely because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, I connected with a couple of people in the trade show industry who's Businesses were obviously significantly impacted because of COVID. There were no trade shows and there were no, say, almost like modern platforms which could support them in this time of extreme crisis. And that's where the idea evolved and then we took it to fruition. Yeah, I wanted to ask a little more about Showmetry, which represents a significant innovation for trade show professionals. What was the state of affairs? Can you describe for the audience the state of affairs before Showmetry was created? Sure. So there's a couple of things. There's two kinds of events. There's B2B events, which are mostly networking events for a specific industry where high-level deals get made. And then there's B2C consumer events where exhibitors display their wares and actually people do transactions. People can go sample those products and buy those products in the trade show itself. Prior to COVID, there were products to essentially help B2B shows in a hybrid capacity. So if you think about webinars where people are just talking and giving essentially informational speeches about certain topics and allowing people to react to those, Those were enabled through the software that was out there. What was not there was this concept of showing out your stuff, right? You have products. How do I get a good look and feel of them? And how do I basically ask you questions live about your products? I think that's the part that was missing before pre-pandemic because it was quite frankly never needed. I mean, if I wanted to see your products, I could go to your show or I could go to your store and check them out. And what we ended up building is that audiovisual component to it, adding it to the B2B trade show platforms that already existed in a sense. And we created this consolidated product that could work for consumer shows and for B2B shows and would allow exhibitors to really go beyond the whole just 
using the trade show for networking and actually use the trade show for showing off and selling your products. That was the big thing. The other aspect of it was just in terms of porting large volumes of attendees. That's something that a lot of the platforms were not prepared for because pre-pandemic, uh, the, the numbers were much smaller. They would get a large chunk of people in the live show and a smaller chunk of people on the online show. Post-pandemic, of course, everything flipped around. And we saw that a lot of the companies that were already in the space started restricting the number of attendees who could attend a talk, for instance, or even a networking event or a webinar. And that was against the very concept of what a trade show wants, which is as many people as possible attending as many events as possible. So what we designed and architected and built really allows for that level of scalability where literally hundreds of thousands of people can participate in the trade show and take advantage of it and not be something that breaks the bank for the organizer either. Yeah, and we should point out to the listeners, showmetry can also be pronounced show me try. We had an interesting little sidebar about that, that um, tech professionals tend to read that as showmetry. People in the trade industry see it as show me try. What I find so interesting about this innovation is after COVID, it continues to add value to trade shows by, as you pointed out, expanding the reach to consumers or other businesses. And something you say that's very interesting in the marketing materials, creating a hybrid experience of on-site and virtual. Yeah, so there's a lot of advantages to using this versus the old model. One of them is it just lives on. You do booth on an online event. The event might only be active for a couple of days. But then really the booth lives on, your products live on, and it gives you an SEO boost over time because you're basically, you still get traffic if that event is a popular event, even after the fact. And if the event had popular speakers who people want to go watch, then they would keep coming back to that site Mm -hmm. and essentially watching the videos of those speakers And that leads to indirect traffic to your booth as an exhibitor and then eventually your site and a long tail of transactions. There's a lot of benefits. Geographical element is critical as well. People no longer have to spend money to actually fly to a location to attend your Mm -hmm. event, to stay there. They can just do it from their homes. And it just gives a lot more flexibility. One of our shows had uh, over 160,000 visitors over three days. That was just completely something that's uh, unprecedented Unprecedented. in a a, a physical show. Well, I think it's a compelling example of how the right technology could really increase your return on investment, depending on what you're doing. Kind of segues to my next question. What are some of the operative assumptions in your field, you're in many fields, let's say software development, that you feel that you've challenged or questioned because they were posing limitations to innovation? Yeah, uh, Lisa, that's an interesting question. It's not just for trade shows specifically, but for business processes in general. When a lot of people who try to innovate a business process, reduce inefficiencies, the like, they're just trying to take an existing business process and fit it in with available technology. What I try to do and what 
we try to do at Pontless and pretty much everything that we do is really rethink that process in the context of technology that is available. It's not just bringing brick and mortar process and throwing it in and building technology around it to enable the same process. Because if you just put technology around the same process, then you end up with the same inefficiencies and it doesn't really make things better significantly. So it's really rethinking the whole concept and making it fit in with what is available technology-wise. That's what we try to do. That's what we try to do with Showmetry. I mean, it's like if you go to some of the competitors' sites who also do virtual events, they try to replicate the brick-and-mortar trade show experience. Like if you go to the show, you see a map of the show floor and you have to go visit a booth by going through the map. When I saw that the first time, my instant reaction was, for an online visitor, what does it matter what the map of your trade show booth is, right? I don't really care if I'm coming online, whether you're at the beginning next to the door or towards the end next to where the food is, it's completely relevant to me. So there ha you have to give a completely different navigation path while still maintaining the concept that in a trade show, people pay extra for prime positioning. So a company is paying extra fees to be positioned in that prime location where you get the most traffic. Now we have to extend that to a more meaningful sense in the virtual world, where companies would still be paying extra for prime placement, but prime placement means a completely different thing in the virtual environment. The approach that we've taken is, is yeah, we, we're just looking at us from a brand new perspective, which is, hey, we're going to do this whole thing online. Let's take what's critical in the trade show industry today and try to see how it works in a virtual environment while making it the most efficient experience possible. Mm -hmm. So as a clinical psychologist, I'm interested in how entrepreneurs and inventors think. Is your creative process Debarchi, is it random? Do ideas just come to you or is it a little more systematic? Do you have a process? Ideas come to me randomly, <laughs> but I think the implementation part is a lot more systematic because it's a, it's a very big leap from ideation to implementation. And if you don't go about it in a structured way, it's almost destined for failure. So from that perspective, yes, I get five ideas a day of products that could potentially work. And I also get pitched a couple of ideas a week by other people with concepts that seem fine on the face of it. But realistically, I mean, to take that to actual a point where people can actually start working on it or even thinking about it seriously, that takes a lot more analysis and more rigor where obviously we have to look at the market, we have to look at pricing, we have to look at what's going to cost to build it out, the real need in the market what the trends of that particular industry, whether that product's going to be needed in the future or not. So all of that has to come together to inform us about the next step. I guess it's a combination of both. Yeah. Talk to me a little more about applicant, because that sounds as if it's a significant innovation in the field of interviewing. And you've talked a little about how necessity also gave rise to that. I guess that's the theme this morning, that necessity is the mother of invention. But how would you characterize the innovations that applicant represents? Yeah, so geometry was a necessity for a specific industry. Applicant was more of a personal necessity at a, at a specific point of time. 
plant needed to hire a lot of people. And we didn't have a large recruitment team. So we just got a lot of applications and candidates for those jobs uh, without the capacity to really screen them. So we ended up building this small app, which would allow us to send them a link and uh, allow them to take a brief screening interview uh, on video that we could then review. And then that would help us weed out the candidates who are not qualified or who are just not interested. And that's, that was an important thing because, I mean, just the fact that somebody was willing to take that interview showed us that that person was interested, at least to some degree. It's almost like uh, you fall barrier beyond having to just send in your resume. And that in itself becomes a marker of interest. Right? At least they're willing to put in the time to look it up and take an additional step. That's sort of how it came about. And then once we started doing this, we started doing this for all of our hires. And then eventually a lot of the partners that we work with in the industry saw us doing this or noticed us doing this. And then they started picking up on it and started using it as well. At that point, it was still not really a product. It was just a tool that was being utilized by a number of related or collaborating companies. At that point, it was still not something we had spent any real marketing dollars on. It's not something we had spent any real effort productizing per se, because there's a lot that goes into that. And it also evolved over time to being more than just an interview app. We ended up building a lot of features to make it closer to an applicant tracking system where people could just track all of their candidates Mm -hmm. and take their interviews and all of that. So it sort of evolved over time into something more than that. But yeah, that's how it started off as something we absolutely needed and we couldn't find a product in the market that could help us do that. Yeah. And it sounds similar to Showmetry that this product adds value above and beyond replacing the in-person interview. It's just shifting gears a little. Based on my experiences as a business owner with various tech consultants, it just seems to me it's relatively unusual to find a tech person who can communicate effectively with people who lack technical backgrounds. So my question is, do you agree with that observation? And if so, why do you think that is? I agree in the sense that, yes, most tech people... (laughs) <laughs> and then, uh, since I am one, I don't know how to, to be uh, um, being too general here. The focus has always been on the technology aspect of it. Companies just focus on that bit without actually trying to understand the scope of the process as a whole. So my attitude really is technology exists to enable other things, right? Whether it's businesses, whether it's creativity, it can be anything, but it's really technology is an enabler. Technology doesn't really mean anything by itself, you know, in, in, without context, at least in the world I live in. But really, it needs to have context to have meaning. And that's the bit that I think gets skipped. People jump into things and say, okay, we'll build this cool new product or cool new feature, but they don't get the why. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think it's just, it's very difficult to understand. Of course, the person who's come up with the concept understands why, because that's why they're paying for it and that's why they're doing it. But the people who are doing the implementation don't really understand the why. And that's why a lot of projects get into trouble. Because a good developer will build anything you tell that good developer to build. 
if you tell them to build a certain set of features, as long as it's technically possible, then that can be done. Projects fail because you tell a developer to build the wrong thing. And then they end up building the wrong thing. And then you realize that they have built the wrong thing. <laughs> That's how it kind of flows. So it's important for every team of developers to have at least a couple of people in there who truly understand the business process, who understand the industry, who understand the why behind why a product is being built, and then communicate that with the whole team. Obviously, it's an inherent understanding that needs to exist within the team as they go through it, because people are making decisions on the fly all the time about certain aspects of the product. And those decisions are always better decisions if they understand the why behind, behind the product itself. So I don't know if it answers you. It does. It's not enough that the CEO understands the end goal or the reason for the development. You're saying the entire team needs to be aware of that to understand what game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they, even if they don't understand all the details behind it, but yeah, they should, they should definitely have a high level understanding of, of the product and the purpose of the product. I mean, it seemed to me that one of the things that sets Quantalus innovations apart um, from competitors is the fact that the CEO is both a tech person and a business person. I uh, agree. I mean, that's something that I think, not to blow my own heart, yes, uh, I mean, that's the reason I do this business and almost a business person by accident. But the reason I am in business is because I like technology, not the other way around. <laughs> I'm a technologist first and then a business person. Yeah. Uh, at least that's how I think about myself. And getting back to your creative process, psychologists talk a lot about cultivating inspiration through deliberate practice, seeking out experiences that inspire you and repeatedly encountering them. And there's data to show that people who practice intentional cultivation of inspiration, have more visionary and strategic thinking. What inspires you, Devarshi? What inspires me? <laughs> um, at a very base level, growing up, uh, really science fiction writers, <laughs> more than anything else. And I'm not talking about aliens attacking the earth kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, science fiction. But mostly, I read a lot about essentially human society and how human society evolves with new technology. And a lot of the more famous, better science fiction writers, Isaac Asimov, Walter Clark, and the like, that, that's really what they dealt with. Essentially envisioning new technology first, but then more importantly, the human reaction to that new technology and the, the, the consequences thereof. That's always been fascinating to me. And that's weird. And it's really exciting that some of the things that I read about 30 years ago as a kid are actually coming true right now. <laughs> it's almost like living through the science fiction you read about 30 years ago. What are some of the things you read about as a kid that we're seeing now? Well, AI in general, even in the limited capacity that we have it now, the fact that you can ask devices questions and they can answer <laughs> with 
all the, uh, the Amazon Alexa machines and the Google Home machines that we have all, all over our house. That's just something that was just dreamt of, right, 30 years ago. And now it's reality. The fact that we carry around these devices which tell us whatever we need to know and communicate, help us communicate with people, that's something that was still in the realm of imagination and it's not true. So it's just all of this comes together and it's of course changed our society as well. I remember one of the really interesting stories that stuck with me from Canada was a story about essentially the loss of privacy. Right. And how, as technology evolves, people will lose their privacy without getting into the details of what that story was. That was the theme of it. And I see that today, right? We really don't have privacy anymore in a strict sense of the word, because everything that you do, everything that you say is recorded for posterity. And how do we deal with that? I mean, a lot of people just ignore it, but that's the reality. And then do we need to do something for it? I think that's, that's really critical. Some of the stories I read today are really are some of the stuff is about even further in the future. How does that work? And one of my favorite authors is Ian Banks. And the reason I like his writing is he has this extremely optimistic view of technology and evolution, where in the far future, humans and advanced AI essentially coexist as equals and they cooperate as equals ah. and it's a unique point of view almost and I find that very refreshing and I find that would really be our future. I really think there's a lot of anxiety around AI and technology taking over our lives and I, I'm sure you see that yourself but I have a more optimistic view of this which is that we will figure out a way of coexisting with technology. We will figure out a way of enhancing ourselves. If there is a chip that reaches close to human intelligence, then we'll figure out a way of incorporating that within ourselves. And we will ourselves will become more intelligent in a sense. Does that uh, now does that keep us human? I don't know. I mean that's a more of a, a existential question, but that's something I would be interested in. I could talk about forever. Very inspiring. And I had planned to ask you if you would describe yourself as an optimist, but it sounds as if the answer would be yes. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm always an optimist. So, I mean, I have to say, in closing, we're having this discussion in the midst of a historic pandemic. To what extent has COVID impacted what you do? Have you needed to pivot at all? Not particularly. I mean, we're in the technology industry and quite frankly, technology is one of the industries that has not been impacted significantly because we are obviously all remote. So hasn't impacted the core business. Obviously, showmetry is one area which grew out of COVID. So I guess there is a bit of a pivot there. But from my perspective, it's still software, which is what we're building. So that's not a big change at all. Realistically, I see the changes really in the way we're working with clients, where a lot of things that were on the back burner or were planned for three, four, five years in the future have suddenly been accelerated 
because of the pandemic. Because these were technology projects that were less critical pre-COVID and have suddenly become more critical because all their business process has to go online because people are not coming to the office anymore. So you have to move faster with technology and make sure it's ready for prime time in 2021. So that's really what we're seeing. Yeah, sounds like a lot of new opportunities with a sense of urgency on behalf of many businesses and clients to implement technologies. Dabarshi, thank you so much for joining me this morning. This was a fascinating discussion. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And as I said, I can talk about technology and innovation and optimism all day. So (laughs) so, (laughs) thanks, thanks so much for inviting me to this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.